All right, thanks, guys. And good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for, uh, for being here today. If it's your first Sunday especially, I want to welcome you uh, to our church, as Ellen did earlier, and, and from home as well. If you're tuning in for the first, first time, uh, welcome to, to Hiawatha Church. Uh, we are right now in a series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, it is one of the 27 books of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible uh, or want to um, find this on a phone app or something as well, uh, please do that. We're in chapter 4 today, verses 1 to 6. I'll have this on screen here in a second as well. Uh, but if you are new to the Bible, especially 2 Corinthians uh, is one of the uh, 13 letters of Paul written to the churches of the New Testament. We have been talking in this series already about how it is ultimately a letter from God to us about Christ. Uh, last week we saw how Paul addressed uh, this issue uh, when he talked to the Corinthians about them being like a letter, a spiritual letter, uh, that was uh, from Christ as well, written by the Spirit, he said, not with ink, uh, but by the Spirit of God. So if you're here from that, in the first part of chapter 3, it's interesting how he talks about letters in a very spiritual way, as though God is the author, as though the Spirit of God wrote these things, these truths down for, uh, for Paul and for, for themselves. Uh, even though Paul's writing this, he's the one writing the ink down. The idea is, we could say the same thing about the whole letter, is that this is a letter from Christ to us, uh, written down by the Spirit of God, even though it was written down physically by the Apostle Paul uh, 2,000 years ago. So I'll say more about where we're at in the book uh, here in just a minute, but let's read the, today's uh, chapter, or, or section rather, um, in full to begin. So if you want to follow along, we'll be in, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Uh, today looking at this idea of how God shines grace into our hearts. All right, here we go, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, so a little bit of context in terms of where we've been, especially for, um, <clears throat> from last week and, and in one sense uh, throughout the book, there's been some, there's been some uh, common themes that Paul has, has addressed. So what I want to do is look at this uh, first phrase he uses, this first clause, when he says, therefore, having this ministry, so especially the idea of this ministry, uh, what he's referring to is uh, what he talked about in chapter 3, and actually kind of the whole book up to this point in one sense, but especially last week when uh, Peter preached through the whole chapter, Verses 1 to 18. What Paul was doing there and kind of is continuing to do into this week is he's correcting the Corinthians for thinking in Old Covenant or Old Testament terms and kind of projecting a works-based mindset onto him and his ministry and in a way kind of back onto themselves uh, in terms of how they think uh, pastors should look or apostles should lead or just Christians should live in church communities and in their lives in the day-to-day. And so in doing that, he kind of spins off into this masterpiece of biblical theology, exploring some of the deeper nuances and differences between the Old and New Testaments. But essentially, he was saying, 
aren't you guys aware that we've moved from the partial glory of the Old Testament to the greater glory of the New Testament? Were you asleep for that part of the movie? Have you forgotten that we live and breathe by the grace of God and not based on our performance or our resumes or some silly notion of letters of recommendation that Peter talked about last week as well, the first part of chapter 3, some silly notion of needing a letter of recommendation to kind of prove our authenticity as apostles or pastors. We are judged purely on the merits of being filled by the Spirit of God, which is not something we can do on our own. We can't do it at all, actually, but we can only receive that from the grace and mercy of God. If anything, our ministry should be graded on whether or not we preach Christ crucified and raised. So Paul's saying all of this. He's saying, why are you adding more to the equation, Corinthians? Why do you look at the outward when God looks at the heart? That's the big thing. Why are you looking at the outward when the, when the Bible is clear, when, it, when the New Testament, the, the, the baseline narratives of the New Testament, the core of the gospel says God looks at the heart and deals spiritually with the inside that then bleeds into uh, the physical and the outside. All right, so when, when Paul's saying this, though, he, he's not saying that we should have no category at all for things like skill in our lives or talents or giftedness, of course, or even things like job descriptions or HR teams or uh, things like that, maybe job performance reviews in churches, as if they are not of the Spirit. He's not saying that. But this still might be a warning against, for us, a warning against putting too many of our eggs in the basket of seminary degrees or experience or personality type, that's a big one, or age, or other criteria when it comes to judging a person's fitness for ministry or when evaluating his or her job. And so the greater questions that we should be asking have to do with what type of gospel is he preaching? Is he submitting his life and teaching to the Bible in its entirety, or is he adding his own ideas to it? Or is he adding worldly philosophy to it? Is he a man of prayer? Is he a man of love? Is he a man of purity? And, and so on. And these questions have less to do with numbers in outward appearance because if it's true that we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, apart from our works, then shouldn't it also be true that we're empowered for ministry by the Spirit of God alone, apart from our works? These are questions we should be asking because they're questions that Paul is raising in the book of, of 2 Corinthians. Right, so kind of have that in mind as we go forward. That's, that's in part a review from where we were um, last week especially, but kind of going back a few weeks, but where we're going to be today and into the, the middle sections of, of the epistle, in some ways all the way through, but in the middle sections of the letter especially. Paul defending himself, uh, but also sharing the gospel through that defense. He's not, you know, ultimately caring about, I want people to like me. That's not Paul. If you know Paul, it's not at all what he's like. Uh, but he, he does want them to know the gospel. He wants them to know that how the gospel informs all of life not just for apostles and church leaders and pastors, but for all Christians, how we should expect our lives to look and how we should kind of judge and, and give merit to things when it comes to like authenticity. How do we know what's right and true? How do we know when a church is healthy? How do we know when the Spirit of God is present? These are very important questions that, that a lot of you might be asking about the church today when it comes to what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be spirit-filled? These are big questions. And they're important ones, and Paul helps to address them in, in this book and other, others of his letters as well. 
let's walk through chapter 4, kind of top to bottom. He does two big things here. We're going to start with uh, Paul's continued defense and his response to the Corinthian critics. So uh, not everyone in the Corinthian church was critical of Paul, but there was a faction that was, and so he's especially addressing uh, them as he writes to the whole church. But the critics are saying things uh, kind of like this, and this is kind of what I said already, but, but with a slight tweak when it comes to uh, expecting uh, a certain amount of conversions, uh, maybe, or sizes of churches when it comes to apostleship. So, uh, but the critics are basically saying things like this. The proof is in the pudding. And Paul is not seeing as many converts as we think a true apostle should see. Shouldn't he be filling stadiums by now? Maybe it's because he's not a great public speaker. I mean, his name even means small, for crying out loud. And the suffering. If God was really behind his ministry, why would he be so weak? And why would he suffer so much? And so in, in Paul's own defense, and to further then uh, teach, like I was saying, uh, about the gospel, about what New Testament ministry and life truly looks like, he says uh, three big things through the first uh, four or five verses of this section. So I'm going to break it down into three things, a gospel thing, a Bible thing, or a biblical thing, and then a spiritual thing. A gospel response or defense, a biblical defense, and then a, a spiritual defense. The first one is just simply Paul saying again, God saves people, I don't. It, it really just comes down to that. Like when, when he says in the first clause again, we have this ministry, I have this pastorate, I have this calling as a leader, this place in life as a Christian, by the mercy of God, by his mercy, as a gift, by his grace, he means again to say that he is an apostle distinctly of the New Testament, not the Old the gospel says we receive from God's mercy, right? Rather than believe that we are rewarded uh, by him for our, for our deeds. Because of grace, we don't have this tit-for-tat type relationship with him anymore. It's not how the New Testament works. And so, so then, the, the big therefore is we should not necessarily correlate visual success with spirit-empowered success. When you look at churches or even look at someone's life, your own life or someone else's, we should not necessarily correlate visual success or uh, visual spirit-filledness with actual spirit-filledness or spirit-empowered success. That's what grace gets at. Sometimes those things line up. They certainly do. But sometimes they don't. A lot of times they don't. Did it look like Jesus was winning when he was gasping for air on that cross 2,000 years ago in excruciating pain? Did it look like he was winning in that moment? Of course not, but he was. And so we should expect similar paradigms ourselves as we live as Christians. And for those of you who lead in the church or will lead someday, we should expect similar paradigms as we share in his sufferings, as we see the best of days come on the heels of the worst of times, right? Or even through the worst of times. We should expect that, that, that same paradigm of the worst moment in history, which was the death of Jesus, bringing about the greatest of goods, the, the ongoing dramatization of that playing out into our experiences and our lives and our church ministries, even right here at Hiawatha Church. And so, and, and the, the big end to this is, and I'm going to quote him from the first uh, verse of today's passage, it's so that we don't lose heart, so we don't get discouraged. You see, this is where it really starts to get real, right? What you believe about these things affects 
how, you're, how much you'll face discouragement or how much you won't when things go di- get difficult in life, when you suffer. And sometimes right after you become a Christian. Uh, one of my mentors said after he became a Christian back when he was in college, he said he entered into a serious state of depression for like 12 months, worst time of his life. It's kind of like, what did I do? You know, but this, these kind of things happen sometimes. But grace says we're not owed something by God, right? We're, we don't, we're not rewarded for responding to him. Now, now, he is our reward, and we have an ultimate reward, of course, in eternal life, and many blessings that come from that into the present, of course. But at the same time, it's not, it's not conditionalized. It's not tit for tat, which is why good people die before bad people many times. It's why Christians' lives are more difficult than their non-Christian friend counterparts' lives. This is, we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? He's been, Paul's been talking about this. All right, so that's the first side is, is the gospel side, is defense is God saves, I don't. So what are we talking about here? That's kind of what, what, that's what he's saying. The second side is saying we refuse to tamper with God's word, meaning Paul's saying that, that he preaches every single word of the Bible, every aspect of the gospel, even if it's offensive and even if people hate him, harm him, or in this case, judge him for it. The, the word tamper is used elsewhere for watering down wine. For watering down wine and making it more diluted. So Paul's not, he's saying, I'm not watering down the Bible. I'm not trying to make it, I wasn't making it more palatable for you, Christians. He's saying, Corinthians, don't you guys remember when I came to you in love and with the gospel? I wasn't watering down the wine of the gospel, the wine of God's word. I gave it to you undiluted. And so this means that there are hard things to understand in the Bible, right? There are hard truths, there are offensive ones. And the reality is, if Paul skipped over those, he might have seen less rejection, maybe even more converts at first, even though they might have been weak or false converts. And so practically on one level, we could say this is a call for all of us leaders, but for all of us to preach and read and accept the whole counsel of Scripture. It's a call not to shy away from what God has to say about things like sexual ethics or the reality of hell or, thing, or other difficult doctrines to accept. Or maybe it's a call for us as leaders to preach and read and believe in the more difficult books of the Bible right alongside the easier ones. For all of us to read, read the more difficult parts right alongside the easier ones. Don't discard and cut up and cross out certain aspects, but to accept them all. Thing here is that Paul that, that Paul is refusing to do is he's refusing to tamper with grace because that's the bigger contextual thing going on in 2 Corinthians, right? Remember, we talked about a couple weeks ago and Peter last week how the Corinthians or many of them, this faction, did not have a category for grace. It was too truncated. They didn't have an, a category for how grace seeped into all of life and became the lens for understanding reality itself, including their own lives, for reading the Bible, every verse through the lens of Christ. Because when we preach grace, it includes things like this, the, these hard-to-swallow-for-proud-people teachings of, and I, I'm, I'm quoting outright verbatim, in, in some of these verbatim, but some of these are paraphrases of other teachings of the New Testament, where it says things like, no one does good, no, not one. This is why we need Jesus. No one does good, no one, not a single person. Even Jesus says said that. No one's good except God alone. The Son of God said that. No one's good except God. 
Or we keep reading in, in where it says, to enter God's kingdom, Jesus teaches, you must be born again, which is something you can't do, right? Who can be born again? Who can do that? No one can do it. And of course, the more direct gospel ideas of your salvation is not of your own doing. And I, I skipped apart. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. Or this direct idea of the Son of Man, Jesus must be crucified. Or Paul saying in Philippians 3 that I consider my former law-keeping days rubbish, my good days. I consider them trash compared to knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. These are hard things, right? And the reality is, if we presented, and I'm going back to some things Peter said last week and, and where Paul said it in chapter 3 when he talked about the differences between the Testaments, the reality is, if, if we presented Christianity and thought of our lives as having the Ten Commandments in one hand and other obligatory lists of do's and don'ts in, in, in that one hand and one arm and the cross in the other, if that's the way we understood life, like if, if I'm this, this Christian, I'm a Christian, but if I'm this Christian and I have the, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets in one arm and they ba- they're balanced out with the cross and the empty tomb in this arm, like if that's what we thought about the Christian life, if that's what it was in the day-to-day, the Corinthian church and our church here would probably be bigger. We'd probably be larger in size. We'd have more people here. We may have to, have to put on an addition into our courtyard because that's not as offensive. It's more palatable to, to say those things, to teach that you can do it, to give you a list. I was talking to some people in my community group last week about how that's kind of what uh, this one gal was just con- confessing this, but we were all with her, just, and she was saying, I, I like the lists. It makes it easier. Like, I like to have a list of things to do. It makes me feel like I have more control over my life. And we were talking about how the gospel, though, was more of a free fall. Like, we, we just, we, we don't have the list. We, we don't, we can't trust in anything that we've checked off. We just sort of fall backwards. It's the ultimate trust fall, essentially, right? Where we're just falling backwards, and we just trust that God's grace and his death and resurrection and Jesus' re- Jesus' mercy for us given is enough, and we just trust that that's, but our lives look like it's a free fall, you know, sometimes in, in that state. But to make it more palatable would be to do what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, I believe, to scratch the itching ears of, you know, people wanting to hear a, a flattering message versus one that makes just much of, a flattering of themselves message versus one that makes much of, of Christ. But again, because our message is we've, we've, clo- uh, we've closed the book, right? This is what he said uh, last week about the Old Testament. He says it's coming, the, the glory of the Old Testament was coming to an end, right? We've closed the book. It continues to speak to, to, to Christ's story and into our life, but we close it in a covenantal sense where we're not under it anymore, and we put those stone tablets down, and we have the cross alone. And because of that, the offense remains. It's, it's a free fall in a good way. And just like for Paul and his ministry, people will always be turned away from that. It will be, to quote from chapter 2, it will be an aroma of death to those people because they are perishing. And it's sad. It'll be the aroma of life to many, of course, to all of you. To those of you who are Christians here today, it's, 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 it was the aroma of life at one point, right? And it still is. But it's the aroma of death to many who want a more palatable, ear-scratching, checkbox-centered, conditionalized form of a New Testament gospel that just doesn't exist. It's man-made. It's made up. 
He also says here in verse 5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Again, saying the same thing. To say we don't preach ourselves is, is to say we don't preach works or what we do as the center, but Christ's grace as, as the center. And the essence of Christian preaching then is not flattery or TED Talks, which is likely what uh, some of these other infiltrating leaders were saying in Corinth, these so-called super apostles that uh, Paul kind of ribs at, pokes, pokes at a little bit, uh, or will. But, but instead, Christ crucified uh, over and raised over and over and over again is the essence of, of Christianity. Look what he said in his first letter to them. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except this one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is this your life? Is this how you read the Bible? Is this how you think about the day-to-day? This is a wonderful invitation into thinking differently. Not in a, a, a syncretized way of having the stone tablets and the cross, but to closing the book on the former and in a cross-centered life alone, right? I mean, think about this. There's a lot to this. There's more to say, of course, about Christianity than this. The Bible's a big book. But Paul's saying, this is essentially all I brought and all I continue to bring. This is the center I mean, can't you hear some of the Corinthian critics responding to this, saying, oh, that's great, Paul, but that's like, that's childish. My, my kids know that. I mean, I wanted an apostle who knows more than that. We want a super apostle that knows more than Christ crucified. We want advanced Christianity. I, want, I don't want the 101. I want the 2201. I want the advanced level. I want the PhD Christianity. I want an apostle who beats that drum over and over again. I want an apostle who uses bigger words, who sounds smarter, and who gives us that advanced form. This is, again, this is what they were sounding like against the backdrop of Paul writing things like this. Is God's grace enough for us or not? That's kind of the, the, and and for a lot of the Corinthians, and for a lot of Christians, it just isn't. Paul is not watering down the wine of Christ's blood, but keeping it full strength, undiluted, and unadded to. All right, then the the third thing he says in his defense is simply, and this will spin into the the next section of, of today's sermon, but he simply says the devil is at work. So remember, some of the critics are saying, why not more converts? Why aren't we seeing? Why are we seeing so much rejection of your gospel if it's truly the power of God? Why are we seeing people hear it and laugh at it or sneer at it or not receive it? Or what if they grew up in a, this is a young church, but let's just say for our context, what, what about kids that grew up in the church and then they walk away? Like, come on, where's the power of God? And so to that, Paul is saying the first two things, but he's also saying the third. He's saying the devil is at work. Blinding people from the light of the gospel, the light of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, which might kind of sound like a cop-out response, but it's not. The devil hates the gospel more than anything. And so demonic resistance, which sometimes, according to Paul, sometimes looks like less converts in a city or a neighborhood or a church. It sometimes looks like less converts, at least for a time maybe somewhat counterintuitively, legitimizes the message. But we know, and this is what Paul's going to spin into next, we know, though, 
that God is stronger than the devil. And that's why he goes into verse 6, which is what we'll look at here next. And I love that Paul shifts here. This is, if you're joining us for the first time in the series, when Paul shifts from, you know, talking about himself or the gospel as it relates to apostleship or the new covenant, what that means, all this stuff that we've been seeing in, in, this, in this series so far, when he does that, he always turns the spotlight back onto the Corinthians and says, this is actually good news for you. So it's kind of on him and kind of on, well, certainly on Christ, but he also turns it back on them and says, the things that you actually want from me, you're saying you want, you want me to wear a cape, you want me to fly, basically, you want me to be super strong and use these strong words and be a great orator, you want me to see, you want me to fill stadiums by now with, with, with converts, Joel Olstein, basically, in the first century. That's what you want with shiny teeth and all that. That's what you want. It's actually to your advantage that I'm not that. That's what he's saying. It's good news for you because if that's what I was like, it would send all the wrong signals about Christianity, all the wrong signals about what it means to be saved. It would send the, the signal of works, the signal of get your life together, then God will turn his head to save you. That's what strength in my life would communicate to you. Even if you're not thinking it, it would seep into your subconscious. But it's to your advantage that I'm weak, that I had this ministry by the mercy of God, not by the works of my hands, by the grace of God, not by my performance, but as a gift from him, not as a ladder I ascended. And so when he shifts then, he's turning the light back on them and, and using the, the first person plural, not just refer, to refer to Timothy and his associates, but but we, as in all of us as Christians, uh, we benefit from this gospel. So, as I say here, Paul then shifts from talking about his ministry objectively to talking right to the Corinthians and to us. And when I look at verse 6 especially, and this is, again, building off the idea that the devil is at work blinding people, but look at what God's doing. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so again, on the basis of all he's been saying before about the New Testament, about grace, about true apostleship, he now goes back to the first page of the Bible. It's kind of like he stops and he says, okay, i got to go back to the very beginning here and show you where all of this New Testament theology is coming from. The New Testament theology comes from the old. It comes from the first part of the book and how it sets the stage for it. He goes way back and quotes the third verse of the entire Bible, Genesis 1-3, where it says there, God spoke into the void. There was nothing there. It was completely dark and chaotic. God spoke in and said, let there be light. And there was. And then he takes that verse and takes that idea and applies that to the Corinthians and our conversion stories. You see how he's doing that? The third verse of the Bible, let there be light. He's taking that verse and, and he's applying that to what happened when we believed the gospel behind the curtains. What happened when we converted, whether it was a day or a season. We're, if you're a Christian now, you're a Christian now, right? How'd you get to this spot? And there's lots of words you can put to that, but Paul's actually putting Genesis 1-3 to that in a new heightened New Testament version, spiritualized way. Tons of rich theology here, but, but the Bible's essentially, if you didn't know this, 
a tale of two creations. There's an old first physical one in the beginning when God made the universe and the earth and all that's in it, including human beings. And there's a second new spiritual one through Jesus Christ. But the theology of that truly impacts us when we see correspondence between the creations as if they inform each other, especially the first informing the second. So allowing the first let there be light to inform the second time God said let there be light in the world and he continues to do it through the gospel every day just like he is right now in this very room. In the spirit of all, Paul reads it here. And when we do that, we come to understand all the more that we have done nothing to deserve or work for the light of salvation, right? I mean, think about the first creation. Did God respond in the beginning to some kind of pre-existing primordial soup's moral uprightness and then say, nice job, primordial soup. I'm super impressed. Now I will give you my light as a reward. Is that what happened? Is that how Genesis 1 reads? Not even close. There was no pre-existing matter anyway. In the same way, God had, this is the second creation, God had nothing to work with when he set out to save or recreate us. There was no pre-existing good inside of us. And that's good news because it means there was only love outside of us who was looking in Hungry to create again, to make something out of nothing. In other words, simply to save us. You see the grace in that? That's your story, you guys. This is, if you're a Christian, this is not just some idea. The Bible hangs together around the gospel. And in the first, the first three verses of the, the Old Testament, the, the first testament as a whole gives you word pictures for understanding what it means that you're saved. God wanted to save you. He said, let there be light in your hearts. And that's what gave you the ability to respond to him. It was not you. It was not a response to something inside of you. It was not even a response to your faith. Your faith in him, that's a gift as well. His faith is light. And so to bring this all back to 2 Corinthians... If all of this is true, then how could we judge a church's ministry based on the number of converts? All right, taking us all the way back to Paul's like initial, this applies to a lot in our life in, in the church, but to go way back, what Paul is saying here is if all this is true, how could we look at like the size of a church or the makeup of a church and judge it on outward appearances? How could we judge a church's ministry based on the number of converts? It starts to sound kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? If God says, if when someone's saved, God says, let there be light through the gospel and then they're saved, if that's entirely God's doing, then how could we judge a person, right? Or a ministry or a leadership team or ourselves? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I don't have this on screen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians Three, we plant, we water, but only God makes things grow, right? We're the conduit. We plant, we water a seed, but only God makes it grow. Isn't that true with gardening and like actual gardening? You plant, you water, you fertilize, you, you might do these things, but it's, you can't actually make the seed germinate. It's the same with all of our salvation. 
The only answer to why you guys are sitting here saved, if you're, is, if you're saved, is because God wanted you to be. If that's not the most securing thought in the universe, I have no idea what is. I have no clue. I have, I have, no, I have a speck of a thought. God wants you to be. He spoke, he spoke into your heart and said, let there be light. And there was. When the gospel preached, it, he, he made you alive into it. He quickened and awoken your heart to the things of grace. So you stopped worshiping yourself and looked to him, looked outside of you, not inside anymore. All that's a gift. It may have looked like a missionary or a pastor or a Bible passage or a book or a circumstantial event that God used, and that's wonderful. But it was still God who did it. And so there's still then, against the backdrop of that, there's still the question of what exactly, though, is that light? Because he's kind of vague at first. So I want to circle back here to, uh, to um, say a couple of things on this before we close. The passage gives us multiple answers for this. First, the clearest. He says, it's not just the light. He says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So light is not just a second chance at life or a fresh perspective on things or even spiritual empowerment. It's the light of Jesus Christ himself, and not just Jesus, but knowledge. You see that? Knowledge about who Jesus is and what he's done. Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Knowledge, knowing that he came into the world to save. Knowledge that he's the son of God, not just a moral teacher. Knowledge that he came uh, not just to heal physically, but to heal spiritually. Knowledge that forgiveness comes through him. That's God's way of forgiving sinners is through Jesus' blood. Knowledge, so we have something to put our faith into, that's the light. But the second answer is actually just as important, if not more, and it's easier to miss because it's more indirect and symbolic. It's found in verse 5, though. When Paul says, For we proclaim what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, this is the key, for Jesus' sake. So, so note that last part. Paul says, we as your leaders are your servants for Jesus' sake. And he's not saying that, that his act of service to them by becoming less uh, is something Jesus needs as if he's deficient, like it's, if it, as if it's for his sake for that reason, but he's saying it's all for the sake of showing off Christ, about resembling him. It's for the sake of putting him on display. So we would see Christ's active service to us through the lens of Paul. If you guys have not been here for this series so far, that is a massive, massive theme to see in this book. Is Paul saying, it's not just my preaching and my words that show you Jesus, but the form of my life shows you him. When I suffer, you should see Jesus' suffering in the periphery and think, oh, I just thought I saw Jesus on the cross there for a second until I sw switched my gaze and thought, oh, it's just Paul. You should have those moments. When you see me suffer, you should get, get a whisper of Christ as a reminder if it's, if, as if it's being replayed out right before your eyes because it's so important to see every day and not just to trust in once when you convert. That's not Christianity. Jesus is... Death and resurrection is daily bread, the Bible says. Every day we nourish, it's in communion. Every time we gather, we nourish ourselves on him, right? So what Paul's saying is, when I serve then, 
you should see a picture of your Savior, your Creator and your Savior serving you. Uh, first in the spirit of Mark 10, 45, where it says, this is Jesus' words, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, for even I came not to be served, but to serve. And, and how, we could still ask there, how? What service? What is the light? Well, he answers it. To give his life as a ransom for many, as something that will buy people back out of spiritual slavery to their sin. That's why I came. Not to be served, to kind of stay seated on my golden throne, unapproachable, but to approach sinners and those who are weak and sick and demonized and leprous and far from me, outcasts, sinners, us, to serve, to wash our feet, not to be washed by us. That's what Jesus said. Isn't that amazing? That's our God. That's what he's like. If you didn't know what God is like, that's what he's like. He came not to be served by you, but to serve you by dying on a cross for your sins, to give his life and to be the light uh, that way. Another verse that's helpful here is Matthew 26, 67, where it says, they, this is right when Jesus is being crucified, they spit on Jesus' face and struck him and some slapped him. And I'm mentioning this verse because of the mention of the word face. When, when you think about the face of God, how in the Old Testament we could not see him, his face was hidden, the, the solution to that problem of not seeing the face of God is the face of God being spit on by us. And when that happened, when he took on all of our sin, all of our angst, all of our riotous intentions, all of our coups, all of that and more, that became the channel by which he absorbed and atoned for our sin by becoming human and dying in this manner in our place. So not seeing God's face to Jesus' face being spit on and slapped to then, there's one more idea, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is the final bookend of this reality. So now we can see the light. Now you, now you are connected with God in a way that is unprecedented, that was impossible for you and I to achieve on our own. The laws of the Old Testament certainly couldn't do it. What could do it was him, but by God being spit on, slapped, crucified, crown of thorns, blood dripping down his face. That face is the most precious face ever because it meant that he loved us to that end, right? He was spit on by the soldiers, slapped, mocked by the Jews. This is the light. The, the light is Jesus himself who was put out on the cross. Remember when the, the sun went out at high noon when he was on the cross, that the sun went black? It's because the light was put out. This is why, this is the crux. This is why the second creation outshines the first creation. The, the two creations of the Bible are not equal. The first is lesser, the second's greater. Because the, and the second's greater because it, the second is where God suffered for the sake of the darkness. You see? The first was shaped by God speaking, let there be light. The second was saying, God said, let there be light again. But the way that's going to happen is by Jesus, the light of the world, becoming dark shaded on and slapped for us. This shift here that Paul makes uh, is something we all need to make when talking about the gospel. Uh, the gospel is not just God saves people. The gospel is God saves you. That's what he's doing by turning the light back on the Corinthians. 
Jesus is not just the light. He is, uh, or it's not just about the light. It's about the light of Jesus, and not just about the light of Jesus, but about the light of Jesus' cruciform service to us when he died that we might live. And um, what I want you guys, what I want all of us to see, what God wants us to see, is this idea that God has shown in your hearts all right, so don't treat this like, a, like an academic exercise where you leave here and you think, well, now I technically know what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says. I could, maybe I've memorized it. I could quote it. I could, I could point out some interesting markers in the Greek language about it. And then you leave as though it's about Paul and the Corinthians. This is about you. God is shown in your hearts. Isn't that amazing? He's shown in you. He said, let there be light in you guys if you're saved. That's, that's what happened. And there is no more powerful mode of transformation in your life than to know that. To know that is true every single day. There's no more powerful way to become a person of love, a person of forgiveness. There's no more powerful way to have sin become more disgusting in your life because you know what God spent to save you from it. In chapter 3 at the end of, that, of last week uh, when Peter preached, he says, Behold the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed. To behold that glory right there is where transformation comes from. And, and this will be true for you. Um, if you guys want something unchanging, this is all I have. This is all we have. This is all, this is all, this is all we have. Everything changes. Whoever's elected this week, whether you get COVID or not this week, you get sick or not, whether you sin this week or not, you all will, I will, this is still unchanging and true. So think of your life daily as a constant receiving of the grace of God shining into you by his own volition because of his great love for you. And if you're not a Christian, he's shining right now towards you. Don't reject it. Don't let the God of this world deceive you and blind you. Open your eyes. Especially this phrase here, they spit in Jesus' face because what, what I want you to see is God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. If you believe in him and you receive the light of that gospel into your heart and you receive God's forgiveness, you will be saved forever and it can never be taken away from you. So let me pray for us and, and we'll, we'll close. God, thank you so much for this passage, uh, so much to it. Thank you that you have shown in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can see your face now, spiritually, and we'll see it physically on that day when you'll wipe every tear from our faces, from our eyes, and we'll enter into glory with you forever, uh, fully, re- fully reunified with you, um, the great bookend of history that will never, ever, ever end, but only increase in scale and glory and beauty and goodness forever. We long for that day, God. Please, please hasten it. In Christ we pray, amen.